Okay. First is going to share his ear. I wasn't sure. Um, I went to, me and Jackie went to Billings yesterday, seen David Fitzwilliams for his first day pass, being there a little over four months. He was excited. He's probably one of the most exciting guys there, actually. <laughs> He's outgoing. And um, so we went over to their little camp, a pretty big camp. It's about five acres that they've purchased. And um, nice to see the director over there with, with the guys doing carpentry work. He was working with them, helping them remodel these places so they'll have a place to stay. They're renting a place right now. And um, so that was, I thought, really edifying to see. You know, man directing Teen Challenge, he's over there with his tools and framing and working with the guys. And told me that he keeps him busy pretty much from either reading the Bible or praying or working pretty much from um, daylight till dark. So, you know, when you have about 15, 20 guys, and they'll probably have more for long. They're hoping to be, up to be able to take up to 40. Um, it finds that when they're busy, they do very well. If they're not busy, they get to thinking about their past life, and sometimes it doesn't go so well for them. So, so it's very unique discipleship that they do, and um, certainly helping David so far. He seems to be determined that he's going to, not have a relapse. Some of the guys that are in the program after a year, then they go out and get in the real world, and then they have what they call a relapse. They do some drugs or get drunk or something, and then some of them come back for, what do they call that? Restoration for another month or so. So, But the goal is that people walk in victory. Um, so I guess that's all I need to say about that. Maybe... Maybe a little, maybe towards the end of the service, Joe, you can share about that prayer request when everybody else has some. Um, anybody have a, something glorious they want to say? Something that God's doing in your life? Yes, James. Okay, you could do that now, I suppose, first. You, you want to do it now? That might be appropriate. Then, um, then Isaac will, will share, Lord, after that, and then we'll have a time of prayer at the end, maybe. Yeah, that would be good. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit about um, Memorial Conference. I don't know how many of you heard what happened there or anything like that, but <clears throat> after Elijah did some, I uh, did the children's, I was, thought maybe it'd be good for me to share a little bit about it because he quoted Philippians 2 which is a verse that's become very dear to me through that weekend. Um, I'm kind of losing my voice, so I shouldn't be too long-winded. Um, 
So um, I'm just going to pray really quickly, Lord. Um, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom on what to share, Lord, and that you would um, be with us today as you always are, Lord, and that we would hear you um, and be subject to you. In your name, amen. Um, so I'll just set the stage a little bit. Um, last, uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we went to Memorial Day Conference down in Oregon, Twin Rocks, and the the day before on Thursday, um, I ended up picking up Talitha. She still likes to be picked up, even though she's two and almost 30 pounds, but um, when I set her down, I felt kind of a, a pull in my back. And I was kind of wondering if maybe I should go to the conference or not, because I didn't, I mean, if the pain was going to keep up the way it was, I didn't want to just drive and make it worse. So I went to the chiropractor. He kind of straightened everything out and told me to take it easy and slow if I was to go out there still. And so I ended up doing that. And I didn't really feel that bad. I really didn't feel anything from it the rest of the weekend. Um... Through the weekend, though, Sunday evening, we had a little men's meeting. And then Monday, um, I went to the prayer meeting on Monday morning. And on Monday morning, during that prayer meeting, towards the end of it, I started feeling a lot of pain in my lower back. And it started getting worse and worse. And... So I, I decided maybe I'm just in a bad posture. And so I sat, I stood up and went to the back of the room and just kind of sat there hoping that it would die down, but it just got worse and worse. And then finally I sat down on the floor hoping maybe that position was good and that didn't work. And so finally I went, I, I snuck out the back and went to the, um, the, um, the cabin where Katie was at, hoping that I could just lay down on the bed and quote-unquote weather the storm. Um, at that point, however, the pain had gotten kind of out of control. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't, um, couldn't walk. Um, I was hunched over. I tried taking a hot shower to relax the muscles and that wasn't working. Everything I tried just caused more pain. Um, It was so painful, it felt good to just yell. Um, I felt like I was going to throw up at any moment just because of how painful it was, not because my stomach was upset, just because the pain was so intense. Nothing seemed to help. And eventually the pain just became so blinding, I really couldn't even focus on anything. I couldn't think about anything. I couldn't focus on what people were saying to me. I couldn't focus on what who was even in the room, really. Eventually, Jackie came in, and she tried to pray for me, too. Um, and then a gentleman called David Devine came in and prayed as well. Um, I remember he had said that we don't need a doctor here, that we have the greatest physician available to us. That was one phrase that I'd heard that had struck home. It was like, yeah, I can depend on God for this. Although even though I was in so much pain, I felt like maybe, maybe a doctor wouldn't be a bad idea. 
he would touch my back and pray. And sometimes it would hurt and sometimes the pain would go away just a little bit. There were people praying for me. Um, at one point they asked me to lay on the floor and that just became blinding. That was even worse. But I remember when that happened though, it seemed to kind of click for my daughter, Talitha. Something was going on. So she came up to me and she put her little hands on my forehead and prayed for me. She didn't know what to say. She just said, Jesus, you're so sweet. I remember Jackie trying to help her pray, telling her what to say. But that was one thing throughout the experience that really touched me. I tried going to the bathroom several times and that didn't help. I tried everything. I don't know if anyone's ever explained to you what a kidney stone feels like passing a kidney stone or if you've ever been with someone who's passed a kidney stone, but it is excruciating. It reminded me a lot of that, even though I'm pretty sure it wasn't a kidney stone. I'm somewhat familiar with pain, and this was definitely something on a whole other level for me. I finally found a position that wasn't so terribly painful. I had a chair in front of the sink. I was really certain at this point I was going to throw up, so I put a chair in front of the sink. I had one leg up on the chair, one leg down, and just hunched over the sink. And just (coughs) with nothing else to do, but to just sit there because it was the most comfortable position. Some more people had showed up finally, too, which was incredible. I was not expecting so many people just to show up and just pray for me. Um, I was really blessed by that. Ruth showed up and prayed. She asked me what I was feeling like, and all I could think of was just the pain. That's what I said. I couldn't put words together. I'm sure there was more that I wanted to say, but really all I could say was pain. So they prayed, but I found myself gritting my teeth during this time and saying, why? Why so much pain? Why was I feeling this? What's going on? Why? Why? Some good friends showed up. Junior showed up. Jesse showed up, too. And after they came and prayed, I finally threw up. The strange thing was is it felt really good to throw up. And the pain subsided while I was throwing up. But as soon as I was done, it came right back. So I went to go use the restroom one more time. When I came out, Jesse pulled me aside and started asking me questions. He said, when did this start hurting? Where did it hurt? Did I think it was a spiritual attack? Did I think it was a physical problem? I told him honestly I didn't know (laughs) sometimes I can tell when other people are being spiritually attacked but I'm completely blind when it comes to me so he asked me to lay down he started feeling my back and when he had first started asking me these questions I'd noticed that the pain was starting to recede and so by the time I'd laid down which I did not want to lay down because the pain when I'd laid down before it was just so painful It got worse. I was like, well, if it's starting to feel good, I don't want to lay down. But he'd asked me to lay down. So I complied. I laid down. And the pain kept receding. He started feeling on my back. 
And he kind of knew what he was looking for. So he was looking for a disc that popped out. He was looking for muscles that had been torn. He'd been looking for something. As he was feeling his back and everyone kept praying, someone had asked him, like, did, did you find anything? He's like, I'm not finding anything. I don't know how to explain this, but I am a skeptic. I'm a very skeptical guy. I have seen people been healed in a way in crowds. I've heard of people being healed. But something during this whole experience kind of rang true my heart, one of the sentences I did hear through the blur was Jackie asked me, do you want to be healed? And do you believe that Jesus could heal you? I wasn't so much pain. I was just like, yes, just <laughs> get it over with. But I realized in my heart, did I really believe? Was I so skeptical and jaded about all of the false things that happened in the world that I had limited what God could do in my life and the life of others through my skepticism? When the pain finally went away, it was gone. I don't know how to explain it, but the pain that I was feeling was so intense that even a dull ache felt like relief. And I knew that there was no way that that pain would go away unless I'd been healed. I'm kind of just testifying about what happened, really. Um, You can interpret it the way that you want to interpret it. I'm still asking God what he wanted to teach me through it. But I know that when the pain was gone, I was so thankful. Jesse told me when he asked me, he's like, is the pain gone? I said, yes. He's like, well, you need to thank God because that's what he wants. And I just broke down crying. I went to David Divine. I just felt such thankfulness for everyone there that had interrupted their schedules to come and just pray for me. And I felt like they needed to be thanked too. And so I went and I hugged everyone that was there and I just thanked them. And I just meant to give them a quick hug and, hug and say thank you, but I just broke down and cried. And then I hugged my wife and I cried more. <laughs> and at some point during this time, someone mentioned that the Entire cafeteria where everyone had been meeting for breakfast that morning had stopped and prayed for me as well. I cried some more. I later learned that later that day, I found out that the gentleman who had stood up in the cafeteria and asked everyone to pray, his daughter had come to the cabin with Ruth. I had never seen her there, so I just couldn't see anything. I didn't even know Junior had come. But she had seen me in so much pain and was so moved with pity 
She had gone to her father and said, we need to provoke the body of Christ to pray. And so he had done just that. And later Jesse and I started contemplating putting the timing together. And we wonder if the pain started receding at that exact moment that the body of Christ as a whole had stopped everything they were doing and prayed. There was a lot of different people inside of that room that were praying for me. Some prayed with tons. Some prayed simply. Some prayed earnestly. Some prayed with tears. I remember when I was healed, I didn't feel like any of them hadn't contributed. I felt like each one God had used in a different way. I remember when Jesse started walking out of the room, he looked at me and he's like, so you're healed, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I'll see you at meeting. (laughs) Some people are like, we should rest. I was like, no, he's right. If I'm going to take this in faith, I need to go. Go to meeting. And I'll explain another reason why I wanted to go too, but I found that when I started walking towards the meeting hall, my back was super stiff, a little painful, and it was hard for me to walk. But with every step that I took, it felt like that stiffness went away more and more. And by the end of the day, well, once I got to the meeting, I had to sit down for a little bit, and then it would get uncomfortable, so I'd stand up. And then I'd just go back and forth between those. But by the end of the day, I felt confident enough to drive home. So we did. So many people were really gracious, though, and offered to drive our car and to let us stay at their house for the night. But despite all that, despite the pain, there were three things that went over in my mind that I could clearly think about. They were kind of three profound lessons for me. And I'm still kind of meditating what they mean. But the three things that I could even pay attention to or think about during the onslaught of pain was number one, the love of my wife. As she broke down and wept, pleading for me to be healed, her sense of helplessness to do anything on my, for my state. It warmed my heart that she cared so deeply. Made me realize how undeserving I am of her. The second one, oddly, was that I was going to miss communion with the brethren that day, which was going to happen at the meeting. If I was in pain for the next several hours, I'd miss it. And for some reason, that really bothered me. I don't know why. Maybe it was the fact that I hadn't broken bread with these brothers for four to five years. But I was so happy that when the pain went away that I'd be able to go and break bread with the brothers that had prayed for me. The third one, and the last one, is kind of broken into two different parts. And they feel a little contradictory, but everyone I've explained it to has said that it makes perfect sense. The first is this, that as I felt that pain, I felt that I was not worthy 
to bear even a portion of the pain that Christ had felt when he was led to the slaughter. The pain I felt, some small part of me realized that it came nowhere close to what he had felt on that great and terrible day, and that I was unworthy to even take a taste of it. And at the same time, I also had a realization that even though I was unworthy to feel the pain, that I was also not worthy of God's grace to be healed and to not suffer the pain for the rest of my life. That I, a sinner, deserve to feel pain perpetually forever, for as the word of God says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If I was to be healed... It was to be by God's grace alone. And I was unworthy of that as well. I think these two points are why I wept so joyfully when I was healed. Because I couldn't help but to feel love, loved by God when it happened. To feel pure joy. That's beautiful. (laughs) Sounds like Talitha got into the uh, sound room. (laughs) Oh, man. No, I did not plan that. (laughs) Through the mouth of babes, right? Anyways, that's the only way that I could describe it was pure undefiled joy. One thing that I thought about while I was kind of writing this down and thinking about what had happened was I realized that I have a different feeling about heaven now. Because it's strange. You you sometimes notice how people have sort of a morbid fascination with heaven. Um, That they they want to see death and they want to see all these things to end. But somehow a part of me realizes now that the story, when we reach heaven, merely continues. And for me, that that makes this life feel less meaningless. That this is all part of the story that will continue in heaven. And for some reason, I don't know, I just had never thought of it that way. Several weeks ago, Jesse shared here at our fellowship that there was one point that he brought, that he thought that I had never thought of before, and it had caught me by surprise when I'd listened to him and when I'd listened to his sermon again. But it was this, and he was saying that God wasn't demonic. He does not create tears or casts. He doesn't divide society. He unites them. He doesn't invite us to barely scrape our way into heaven and have a cabin on some distant hill outside of Jerusalem. When Jesus invites us into heaven, he invites us into the new Jerusalem. It got me thinking about a lot of things. 
things I don't fully understand. There's clearly verses in Revelation that talk about people being outside of Jerusalem. But it's made me think about God and salvation in a different light, considering everything I went through. Jesus didn't invite us into a kingdom of pedestrians, of plebes or squires or knights or any other tier of society. He asks us to join him as brothers, joint heirs, priests of the heavenly realm. He called us into his family, something we're not worthy of. It's easy to think about tears and casts because then we can feel like we can work our way into heaven. But God invited us into something so much more profound and gracious than that. He invited us into his family. If you think about your family, there's not a whole lot of tear or cast there. There's the mom and the dad who look over the children. And the children are all on the same level. I'm not saying that we're at the same level of Christ or greater than him, but it's a lot better way to describe heaven, I think. I'd like to close with a short scripture, which actually Elijah shared and prompted me to go ahead and share today as well. Over in Philippians 2, 12 through 15. Just move over there really quick. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to do, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of gods, without rebuke. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generate, perverse nation, <coughs> among whom ye shine as light in this world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, that I, if I be offered upon the sacrifice, I'm actually going to stop right there at verse 15. The biggest thing that stuck out to me in this verse, because I actually ended up highlighting it on Saturday night during this conference, and I knew a lot of these verses individually, but I didn't know that they had all been right next to each other. I mean, I probably did, but subconsciously, I don't think I did. And the biggest thing that struck out to me throughout this whole ordeal was that one word I had repeated when I was in pain. And it hadn't been the word Jesus. It had been the word why. It's not easy for me to admit this, but on the way home, as I was talking to Katie about it, and explaining everything that happened from my point of view, and she explained her point of view, I realized after the fact 
that I had failed. That through that whole experience, I had not been blameless before the world and my suffering. That I had murmured, asking why. It put such a weight on me to realize that Christ, when he was led to the cross, was blameless as the sheep before the slaughter, despite all of the physical and spiritual pain that lacerated his body, he did not complain once. He had been truly blameless before the world. Just as it says here in Philippians, that if you want to be blameless before the world, do not murmur or dispute. Oftentimes I find myself murmuring or complaining about life. One of those things in my heart has been the lack of hearing God's voice and direction lately in my life. I've learned that it happens from time to time in the Christian's life. That sometimes, as you continue on your journey, that God becomes silent. It's not that he's left. He's always there. He's just quiet. But that's why the first part of those verses stood out to me. Imagine for a second that Jesus was the one speaking these verses and not Paul. Which would make sense since the book was inspired by the Spirit. Paul says that you obeyed in my presence only. No, he said that you obeyed not only in my presence, but so much the more in my absence. I realize that I want to be like that, obeying Christ all the more when I don't hear his voice or direction clearly and profoundly. When he allows me to be tried, to see what's really in here, inside of my heart. Yet, to do that, I have to be able to be blameless before the world, as it says in that verse. Our generation, our nation, our world is often described as perverse and wicked. Seems to be the only thing that we can describe them as. Yet we're given the key in this verse how to shine like light to these men and women. To do all things without murmuring and disputing. That means, saints, we do all things with thankfulness and unity.
Well, thank you, James. I was going to say good morning, and it still is morning, so oh, praise the Lord. It's been a while since I've been up here. It's been, uh, I guess everyone has their different times of pain and suffering and <clears throat> the good times and the bad times. Um, mine wasn't quite as heroic as James. I fell down some stairs because I was carrying something and kind of texting on my phone at the same time, so it's probably my own fault. <clears throat> but uh, sometimes through difficult times, it reveals who we are. Um, I've always said it before, but um, years ago I went through a lot of pain and suffering and sickness, and um, I remember asking the same questions as James asked is why, and I think God wants us to learn, so asking why once is okay, but then when he answers the why, we have to accept it and um, grow. As James was saying, we have to just believe and trust and believe that God has a plan through it. The vow of the shadow of death isn't somewhere where we camp. It's something we pass through, difficult times. But uh, I asked the question why at one time about some things I was going through, and um, God made it really clear to me why. Why is it difficult now when everyone else is having it easy? He asked me this, everyone is going to go through the fire, everyone's going to go through the storm. The matter is when. Do you want it now, or do you want it when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in your body. So, Jesus gave a saying that there was a man who built a house. One built it on the sand. The other one built it on a rock. And the winds and the waves came and blew against the house. And the one house that was built on the rock stood... And the other person, the very same storm, blew against their house, and probably the house was built very much the same, but it fell because its foundation was on the sand. The exciting thing is, for both people in the story, if this happens now, if this happens when Stephen stood up and preached all the religious leaders of his day and said, you with your own wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory, and they are pricked at their hearts, they could do one of two things. They could acknowledge, yes, my house isn't standing, this storm, this test. We're exposed that we were wrong. We will swallow our pride and say yes to the truth. That's the one option. The other option is to kill the messenger 
which they did. The very same thing happened when Peter stood up and preached. He told them also that they had killed Jesus with their own hands. They were guilty. They were sinners. They had fallen short of the glory of God. And they were pricked at their hearts also, but they repented. And 3,000 people were added to the church. So, I don't know. I've been thinking kind of along the lines of what we've been hearing today of why? why. Why does these things happen? I read an article the other day of the Uyghur people in China. Um, I'm not quite pronouncing it correctly. Uyghur. Um, they're a Muslim group. But they also reflect how the Chinese treat the Christians also in China. They have them walk in front of a machine that shows how they walk. So they can graph them. Has them talk for 20 minutes reading books in front of a machine so the AI can understand their voice. Reads the retina of their eyes. Completely categorizes them into a big computer. And during the week when they got to stand up and hold their red flag and give allegiance to the Communist Party and renounce any god but Xi, their president of China... If they don't, they'll be hauled off to a concentration camp. Zero tolerance. I've been thinking about that. Is life fair? It's not. But there's coming a day where things will be fair. So I'll go ahead and read a few things, beings that goes along with what we've been hearing so far today. Sometimes I get upset when I see evil going on in the world. I don't like an innocent person, someone that has no way to defend themselves, protect themselves, being taken advantage of. Whether it's a Chinese, Christian, Muslim, whether it's some other minority group somewhere else who just is taken advantage of, there's no one to stand up in court for, they have no inside people that are friends in high places that can help them get through. The courts are a kangaroo court, they're stacked. When you go there, the judgment is predetermined. And these people just get chipped off, like the, the Hitler did to the Nazis, into these big camps with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and they just rot away and die. And then they just throw them away. And they just turn back into dust. And these high people in high places think they got away with it. They do. Or they wouldn't be doing it. They don't believe there's any accountability. They believe they are God. <clears throat> thought of Genghis Khan, who vanquished some of the biggest landmass in history of the world. He would go through with his armies... The gold horde was one of his top armies. And they would go through and they would just literally annihilate everyone. They would kill and slaughter just about everyone in some cities. He would take the prettiest women from all the generals and all the captains of the place. He took and become his wives. He had hundreds if not thousands of wives. Was it fair? No, it wasn't. But is it the end of the story? Remember David in Psalms said he 
saw the wicked, how they prospered. There was no bands in their death. Everything they did seemed to go fine. It was unchecked, unbalanced. There was no accountability, it didn't seem like. And David said he was upset until God answered a question of why. God unveiled to him the end. In John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. That last Chinese Christian that was just thrown out of that concentration camp, just emaciated and starved to death, and just turned back into dust, has a promise from God. Verily, verily, I say unto he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. I remember Hudson Taylor in his book, when they had run out of food and they had nothing left. His wife said, we have no food, we have nothing more to eat. Where's God? You know, he hasn't, he's, we're supposed to be providing for us, we're living by faith. And Hudson Taylor said, we're not completely out of everything, we still have all the promises of God. That's one thing, the richest person, the greatest general, the most conquering captain doesn't have, they don't have God, is his promises. <clears throat> Verse 25 Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. There's a verse that, I think in Hebrews, that talks about a son being disciplined. If you don't receive discipline from the Lord, if you don't receive chastening from the Lord, then you're a bastard, you're an illegitimate son. But a true son of God receives discipline and chastening. Have you ever wondered why David, when he committed a sin that all the heathen nation kings were doing in his time, why he got such severe discipline? Why there was such severe judgment on the nation of Israel when he took Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite? Do you realize what he did was a normal thing in the day? The kings would just take whatever pretty woman was in the crowd. didn't matter if they are married or not. That was common. That was normal. People just got away with it. Why didn't David... Because he was a child of God. That's why. Why don't you get away with things? Because you're a child of God. A real son gets discipline. A real son gets chastening. A real son gets correction. A real son might have to even get sick for God to get his attention. A real son might have to go through some things. So you might ask God, God, why do I have to go through this? Well, because God loves you. That's why. He's trying to get at something. He's trying to unveil something. He's trying to reveal something. I don't know what it is, but God does, and he'll show you. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. In verse 27, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. This is pretty exciting. Jesus has authority to execute judgment on humanity, first because he's God and the Son of God, secondly because he's God and also the Son of Man. 
He can come and make judgment, and he will come and make judgment because he walked in the shoes of humanity. He understands what humanity goes through. He understands the temptations. He understands the battle. And that's why we have a high priest we can go to now. But here it says, he has given authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say Genghis Khan is just going to stay in the grave and he's never going to have to give an account. He had his day and enjoyed himself and now he's just done. Good people will rise, but bad people get away with it and they're just, it's over for them. No, it says here, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Imagine that day when everybody, not just some, everybody, hears his voice. The voice that called and said, Lazarus, come forth after you've been dead three days. He came out, bound, hand and foot. The voice who said, let there be light, and there was light. The voice that divided from the firmament, from the firmament, the waters from the waters. The voice that spoke all the stars and all the galaxies into existence with the worlds rotating around their stars. The voice that said to the waters, and they only come so far, and the rivers and the hills set the bounds. The voice that did all of this is going to speak again. You know why it's so exciting to me that this voice is going to sound again? Because if you go to John chapter 17, Jesus talks about this. He says in John chapter 17 that these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. There's coming a day where there's an unveiling of the glory of the triune deity, Jesus, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And verse 4, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the works which thou hast given me to do. Now, this next verse hasn't happened yet. Or it's happened, but we haven't experienced it all yet, let's say. The first part of the glory has already happened. When Jesus walked on this earth, he lived in a glory that shook the foundations of hell. He lived in humility. He lived in brokenness. He lived in total dependence of the Father. He lived and proved that in the frail humanity that we are framed and that you can live an overcoming life. Jesus went and did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, not just because he was God, because he said, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. So Jesus showed that it's possible in this broken world and in this broken flesh that we live in that he can live his life in and through you. And you can be an overcomer. And he showed a glory of God in that. Coming and being born in a manger. Being born as nothing. He showed a glory. But look at verse 5. But now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before, when the glory of God enveloped all things. There was no room for worlds. There was no room for galaxies. There was no room for anything. But God filled everything. For eternity past, 
God was everything. And Jesus is saying, I want my disciples not just to see the glory that I can do now in this earth through them, which some of us are experiencing today, but I want there to come a day when they see the glory which we had before the world began. Have you ever prayed, God, show me your glory? Moses did that once. He didn't say, God, make of me a great nation. God, do another great miracle. He said, God, show me your glory. Because he knew if he got a greater revelation of the glory of God, he could go through and do anything that God asked him. Look at that. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Back in John chapter 5, it says, Marvel not, for they which which in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. Let's go to Revelation. I don't know. When I was young, I would read the scriptures of God's judgment and revelation and book of Daniel and other places, and I'd tremble. I'd be scared. I wish it was never going to happen. I wish it was never, I wish it was fake. I wish it wasn't real. But the longer I live and the more I see Satan and his kingdom and the prince of the power of the air and darkness, the more excited I get. What does it say? The spirit and the bride say, come. You realize the judgment of God is an awesome thing, a good thing for those who are a friend of God. Judgment's only scary if I think I'm going to slide under the radar. Remember the captains and the great men of the earth are going to cry and say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from he that sits on the horse in the wrath of the Lamb. Not quite like that. Anyway. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto unto them. And I saw the souls of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. I thought these guys were gone. They were beheaded. They were just thrown out as dung to the earth. uh, Grass grows up out of the remains and animals feed on the grass. These people are over. They're done. It's over. It's, they're gone. There's no justice with God, the world will say. 
Some people, when they've been tortured, they ask them, you realize if God was really good, he wouldn't be letting you go through this. They even doubt God's goodness to allow them to exist. They're so bad. But they fail to understand the vastness of the wisdom of God. Doesn't Ephesians talk about that? Oh, the unsearchable riches, unsearchable knowledge. In verse 5, But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said he might attain to the resurrection of the dead? He wasn't talking about hoping that he doesn't go to hell. He was talking about wanting to be found worthy in the first resurrection. All right, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather together them to the battle, the number of who is a sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into a lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. In verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it from whose face. I believe this is the fulfillment, one of the unveiling fulfillments of what it was talking about in John chapter 17, that Jesus said, I want them to see my glory, which I had with the Father before the world was. Listen to this. In verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. We're right back to the beginning. Right back to the glory that he had before there was any worlds, before there was anything else but God himself filling space and everything. And there was found no place for them. God encompassed, filled up, took over, dispersed, became everything. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That's going to be a shocking day when that man who was a great general in army, Titus men come up to Jerusalem and they rip apart all the women and all the children and destroy the city and burn it to the ground and have zero mercy on anyone. Just annihilate them, butcher them. All those people that he killed are going to be risen from the dead. They're going to be standing there and this general is going to give an account of how he led his army, why he did what he did. He's going to be judged exactly how he did it. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And you'd say, well, no one else is going to be there. It's just going to be you and God giving an account. Well, I don't know. But I do know this. Some people are going to be there. You know what Jesus said? He said, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it. Because a greater than Jonas is here. I came and preached to you, and I'm I'm God incarnate in the flesh. I give you a perfect gospel, a perfect message, and you reject it. Jonah, a flawed man, running from God, a sinner himself. Yet, men of Jonah, they repented and got right with God. In judgment, 
When your bones are resurrected and you stand before God and the men of Jonah are resurrected and stand before God, they're going to stand up that nation again, stand against this nation and say, look it, we repented and we just had Jonah, a man that was just a rebel and ran from God. who even hated us. You had Jesus, the Son of God, stand and give you the message and you rejected it. I was thinking about that. Who's going to be standing there on the day when I stand before God and give an account? I don't know. But I'm excited that today the wind and the storm is blowing at my life. So God can examine me now, purge me now, change me now. Rather than then. When the book has been written and it's been closed and it's sealed and only the Lamb can open it. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. I'm thankful for that other book, the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Think of all those sailors. Some of them aren't great people. Some of them were rebels that ran from God. And they didn't make it to their destination. No one is lost at sea. Even the oceans is going to give up the dead. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Even hell and death will give up every single person. No one is going to hide. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're Donald Trump. It doesn't matter if they're Rudy Giuliani. It doesn't matter if they're any political person. It doesn't matter what kind of hidden... Um, skull and bones or other organizations they're in. It's not going to be just bad because judge judge you, but the whole thing is going to be revealed. Do you realize that Satan's kingdom is built on a lie and the reason people do so, it's horrific things, is because they don't think they're ever going to get caught. No one's ever going to see it. They have friends in high places. Everything's pushed under the rug. I was wondering the other day when some girl was found in the river that had disappeared a few months ago. All they found was some remains. And they did a thing with the teeth and figured out it was who they were looking for. And they closed the case because really can't figure out if it was a mistake or someone did it. No one will ever know, they say. Is that true? No one will ever know. Well, the, everyone will know. That's what's so exciting about God's kingdom is God's kingdom is built on truth. He's going to reveal everything in the end. It's either let him reveal now, convict you, repent and get right with God, or do it then when it's too late. It'll still be revealed, though. Nothing will be hid. Lake Mead is lower than it's ever been. And they're all of a sudden finding these barrels from Las Vegas, these gangs that put people in barrels and threw them into Lake Mead. For maybe 10 years, these barrels have set at the bottom of Lake Mead, and now the water's drying up, and now they're seeing these barrels down there. And they open them, and they have remains of people in them. How would it, no one's going to ever know who did that. Satan promises them, no one will ever figure it out. Your conscience won't bother you anymore if you keep doing this, which it doesn't anymore. No one will ever find out. You got away with it. That person was just down, just lower down evolution pole, so they weren't as fit and didn't have the connections you had, so they lost out, and selective regeneration happens, a plant grows out of the remains, and that's the end of it. You move on. 
Won't that be shocking when that person who put that person in the barrel and threw them out and that person is alive, standing before God right next to that person who threw them in there and God is asking them, why did you do this? Kind of like God asked Cain, where's your brother Abel? Same kind of thing. Where is he? I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know anything. I get excited because I know this is going to happen because it's God's character. God's character is light. It brings light to every situation. God's character is truth. It brings truth to every situation. God unveils every situation. He doesn't let any person, any world, any kingdom, anything stand without it being unveiled for exactly what it is. So we might see skyscrapers out there with executives and businessmen who own them, we think. And then you look at the books. 95% of it is all borrowed. They don't really own it. They look like they do. The world looks, the United States looks like it's a prospering country. It looks like we're well off. It looks like we have money everywhere. But go look at the deficit. Go read what the president reads and the other cabinet members read. How much money do we really have? We're owned by bankers and Chinese and other countries who also are owned by other people. Everything we see that's not based in Jesus Christ is really a lie. It's really fake. It doesn't have any lasting benefit. So for the truth to unveil your life and my life, and people to realize, well, that person wasn't as spiritual as I thought they were. God needs to do a lot of work in that person's life. And maybe someone will even bat, bad mouth you behind your back because you didn't hold up some spiritual facade so everyone thought that you were something great. Does that really matter? It doesn't. Because God already knows. God already sees. And guess what? The world and everyone else will see it one day too. I'd rather have God's refining fire now than that. In verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it, and death and hell delivered the dead which are in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The exciting thing here is there is hope that your name can be written in the book of life. I find it interesting that even those people whose names was written in the book of life that weren't partaken of the first resurrection, that were in the second resurrection, there was still hope for them. This group of people here still had three books open. They still had the books open. They had Verse 12, the dead, small, and great, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. But also, it's serious because even those whose names are written in the book of life still gave an account of the deeds that they did. It was still unveiled. Do you really think that for God inviting everyone into eternity, he's going to have a bunch of things swept under the carpet? Do you think everyone's going to think, oh, well, this person, you know... Not going to know. No, God's going to reveal everything. 
Look at this in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. I sometimes wonder if it's going to be kind of like what it was supposed to be like before Adam and them sinned, that there was a firmament, and there was a mist from the ground, and it's brought back to God's original intention. The beauty that which transcends anything you can imagine. And verse 2, verse, Revelation 21, verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. His glory is back. He is the great I am in everything. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. But verse 4 catches me, because even the people that are coming to each, into eternity are going to stand and give an account. Even those people that have found justification through Christ are going to give an account of the deeds that they did. Once they've sold out to the Lord, once they've become a Christian, God's going to, they're going to give an account of what they did with that that God gave them, what they did with anointing God gave them, what they did with the wisdom God gave them, what they did with what gifts God had given them. How would they invest it? Were they one that dug a hole in the ground, or were they someone that went out and used what God gave them? <clears throat> Listen to verse 4, though. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give unto him that a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is second death. I don't know. After I go through this, instead of feeling sorry for myself and for the poor Christians who love not their lives unto death, but were faithful to God, didn't care what happened to them, and now their life is extinguished and they're in some grave or put in some incinerator. I don't really so concerned about them at the moment. I'm more concerned about all the people that did this. They're the ones to tremble for. So, God answers my question of why that there is justice with God. No one's going to get away with anything. Because if they did, then Satan is one. Because Satan's kingdom is a lie. He hides things. His kingdom is built on darkness and in dark and at night. God's kingdom is built on light and truth. God can only do is unveil and reveal the truth. Because Jesus said, we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, <clears throat> verse 26, If you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men of the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. Someone asked me the other day, I was talking with someone, 
There's, there's no more. Where's the godly people that are presidents and kings? And, you know, why is it Putin over there? And why is it, you know, this person or that person? How come there's no good people where they can really make a difference? Well, God says you don't have to be in a high place to make a difference. And the reason he does that is because he wants to confound the wise and the mighty. He wants to take them something that is not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh, it says, here will glory in his appearance. If he can take you and make a king tremble, then who gets the glory? God, not you. Because you're nobody. You came from nothing. Was it, was it Amos or one of the, the minor prophets? Yeah, which one was it? Amos? He's like, I'm not anything special. I didn't even come from a lineage of prophets. I was just a shepherd. I was just a herdman out following the flock, and God took me, and God called me, and God sent me. I'm nobody. But I'm something because God has made me new in the New Testament, you could say now. But you see your calling, brother, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. I've always wanted some great position so then I could do some great thing. God says, just serve me, and he'll decide whether it's a great thing or not, I guess. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, as we quoted, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then one of my favorite passages in Scripture here, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, look at this. But of him are ye in Christ, Jesus, who of God is made unto us, who? Jesus has made unto you and us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So, I sometimes get upset when you look at the systems of the world. Who's in charge? What's going on? All the injustice. But when you ask God, there's nothing wrong to ask God questions. There's nothing wrong to ask God why, if you don't know? Because we need to know. God wants to bring light to our understanding. There was another passage about that, but I'm not going to go into that. But I don't know. I'm excited because truth is marching on. Maybe we could sing that song. What is that? 60. My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. Let's sing that, and then I guess we'll. my dad will do testimonies or whatever he's going to do.